Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. ARCHICAD is the official BIM software of the Entree Architect community. ARCHICAD BIM software enables design, collaboration, visualization, and project delivery no matter the project size or complexity. With flexible licensing options and a dedicated support team to guide us along the way, ARCHICAD is an ideal choice for firms and projects of any size. I encourage you to reach out and talk to the folks at Graphisoft by visiting our own dedicated webpage at graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. There's even an exclusive special offer waiting for our Entree Architect community. Go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect and see how Graphisoft is positioned to help make your architecture firm a success. That's graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. All right, so today we're doing something completely different. This is sort of strange to me because I'm usually sitting in a different seat. Today I'm sitting in the, the interviewee seat. I have an interviewer, guest interviewer. My friend Mark Zweig is with me today, and uh, we're going to turn the uh, tables, and Mark's going to interview me, and uh, Mark's been on the show several times, and the last time we were on, Mark said, hey, well, why don't I come on the show and interview you and uh, and get a little bit of your background, and so I thought that'd be great, and you know, not only do I get a, I don't often get a chance to to talk about me. But to have Mark Zweig interview me, that'd be even greater. So, <laughs> Mark, thanks for coming by the show here and uh, and flipping things on me. Hey, it's really fun. It's always great talking with you. We never seem to run out of material. Yeah, and, for uh, sure. I don't think that'll be the case today. I, yeah, I was just thinking to myself, I mean, you have everybody on your show, but we don't know enough about you. So yeah. I thought this would be fun. I love to share. So, so we can go anywhere you want to go. Well, there's that country song. Let's talk about me. Have you ever heard that one? Yes, I have. <laughs> I have. I love that. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself, Mark. Now, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Yeah, let's go way back. I grew up in New Jersey, in Paramus, New Jersey, Bergen County, uh, northern New Jersey, about half hour outside of New York City. 
so the New York uh, metropolitan area. Mm -hmm. Paramus is known for their shopping malls. And so uh, it is <laughs> it is where the intersection of Route 17, Route 4, and the Garden State Parkway cross. They I all see. come together in that same location. Um, and so it has been a, a shopping mecca for the for the eastern northeastern uh, United States, and uh, and that's where I grew up. And it was a it was a great childhood. I um, loved I still love Paramus. My mom and dad still have a house there, although they don't live there very much. <laughs> they they're nomads. They go they go chase, chase the warmth, and so they're in Florida in the winter and and way upstate New York uh, at a Alexandria Bay in uh, in the summertime. Um, but growing up at Paramus is, you know, a typical suburban environment. And uh, as a teenager, I used to hang out at the malls and do the things that teenagers do in suburban uh, growing up. And it was great. <laughs> it was a great, great childhood. Did, did you go to, into the city much when you were a kid? I guess you could take a train, couldn't you? Pretty easily. We could. It, that's, that's funny because often people hear that I was a half hour outside of New York City and, mm -hmm. and would expect that I would spend a lot of time at the city. Um, but no, we, we used to go in a um, couple of times a year. We would go to the uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade uh, every sure. year. Sure. That's big. And so we would do that. And my dad is a, uh, today is a re retired auto mechanic, but at the time he was a, an auto mechanic, had his own business, uh, which is where I get my entrepreneurial roots. Uh-huh. And he used to, we used to go to the car show and to the boat show at the Coliseum before okay. they moved to the Jacob Javits. Uh -huh. um, and in uh, Columbus Circle, which now I think the Coliseum is where the Time Warner building is. Uh, I'm not sure the Coliseum is there anymore. What, that's interesting. I knew your dad was into cars. I didn't realize he had his yeah. own shop. Was it just an independent shop or what was it? Yeah, just an independent shop uh, in uh -huh. Emerson, New Jersey, Kinderkamack Road. Um, and he had his, his own shop for 50 years and gas pumps out front and a couple of repair bays and specialized he he was a corvette collector he loved corvettes i knew that yeah and uh he had a collection of them and and he would repair them as well and restore them and so sort of as a side business he had this you know corvette restoration business and repair business but i did general repairs for the neighborhood and uh and i spent a lot of time there and and learned a lot about cars and a lot about business a lot about people that's a good a good business to to learn how people think and how they act because there's lots of one-on-one uh, -on -one interaction with with people getting gas or coming by sure. for repairs. It was fun. I, I find a lot of architects like cars. That's been my experience. There's a lot of crossover there because you appreciate design. Yeah, you know, and yeah. and quality craftsmanship. So yeah. your dad, I know he's still alive. Is yeah. um, where are his cars now? Uh, most of them have been sold. He still mm -hmm. he has three Corvettes still. Mm -hmm. He has two fifty fives. Two 1955s. Yeah, the white 55 that he's had my whole life. First year for a V8, it would be a 265 yes. in those. Exactly. Yep. He has a. He also has a red 55, which was my grandfather's car when my. Uh, I don't know what the occasion was, wow. but somewhere along the line, my dad gifted my grandfather a 55 Corvette, which sounds uh -huh. amazing. Um, but it was, it was a basket case. It was a chassis and a raw <laughs> body and no interior, no engine, nothing. Um, and the deal was that, uh, pop up, my grandfather would pay for the restoration, but my father and my uncle, who is also an auto mechanic would restore the car and they, and they restored it to top quality. And when they were finished, they took it on tour for all the car shows, the NCRS car shows. People need to, what is that? The National Corvette Restoration Society yeah, or something Society. like that. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, so we, that summer, we, the whole family loaded up the, the Corvette on the trailer and toured mm -hmm. all the shows and, and won all the top prizes. It was first place everywhere it went, got Briner Blue Award, which is like the top Briner, you know, top flight award for restoration. And it became the car that everybody referenced to see how they should restore their cars. Wow. Um, and so he still has that car. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not the car it was back then, you know, yeah. obviously over time it, it hasn't been restored again or, but it's, uh, it's, it's there and in great shape. And then the third Corvette that he has still is a 1967, uh, 427 big block convertible. 
Ooh. Uh, with side pipes, and it, that is, it is my favorite car that he's yeah, always had, that he's ever had, um, <laughs> and uh, and it's still sitting in the garage up on a lift on top of the, one of the other cars. <laughs> wow! Does that have knockoffs on it? It does. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Knockoff wheels, yeah. So, what when you were sixteen? I think that was the driving age in New Jersey, wasn't it? Um, so, uh, it was set. It, you could, if you took drivers education you could start at 16 and a half which okay. i didn't do uh -huh. uh, and so i didn't start driving until <laughs> i was 17 but i bought my first car when i was 13. what was that it was a 1972 camaro oh man and, was uh, it the rs with nope. the split bumper or this no? one was not this one this one was in great shape mm -hmm. um but it but it was a standard i think it had a, had a 350 in it and uh it was in you know it it, it it was a flip is what it was. My, my dad used to do that with Corvettes. He would buy them or store them or fix them up and sell them. And so he taught yep. me how to do that. And yep. so that was another, you know, sort of a boost to the entrepreneurial spirit. Sure. Showed me how to do that. And so when I was 13, we went to Carlisle in Pennsylvania, which is a huge car flea market. Sure. And we used to go every year because that was one yep. of the things we did as a family. He would, he would load up the trailer full of parts and we would get a, a space at the flea market and we would spend the week at Carlisle and sell parts. And so I would, every year we would go. And so, you know, as kids, we'd run off and go do our thing. But when I was 13, I asked him if he would help me, you know, pick out a car. Mm -hmm. And I had been saving, you know, my, my money working for him. Yep. And I, and I saved up to $1,200 and I bought a 1972 Camaro, uh, dark blue, and he drove it home and I went home and cleaned it up and fixed whatever needed to be fixed on it and, and put it out in front of his shop and sold it for $2,400. Double my wow. Money. So yeah. you made a profit on the first one right out of the I gate. I did. Yeah. Then what'd you do with the 2,400? I rolled it into another car. Okay. I had a 72. Then I had a, um, I think the second car was a 69 Camaro convertible that I did the same thing with and doubled my mm -hmm. money again. And then I think the next one was a 1970 Chevelle, big block. Uh, it would have been a 454. It was a 454, yeah. That one had some rust issues that I wasn't aware of. Uh, so we still sold it for a profit, but didn't make as much as I had in the past. And then I had a uh, 72 Camaro, green one. And green at the time was not very trendy. And so that took a little while to sell. But profit made profit on that as well. And then, and then I finally bought the car that I still have today. I, when I was 16, mm -hmm. I bought uh, a 1969 Camaro Rally Sport with oh, a yeah. 350 Chevy engine in it and uh, still have that car today. That's and, the hidden headlights model, isn't yes, it? Yes. Yeah. It has hideaway headlights. Yeah. What year yeah. is that? I mean, what color is that? It's black with a white hockey stripe on the side of it. Oh man. Good color combo too. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And, and my dad, when I bought it, you know, and that was the car I was going to it was going to be my car, right? This car wasn't the flip car. Right. And so uh, when I bought it, dad said, don't ever sell it. He said, mm -hmm. you know, just keep it. He said, if you're ever tempted to sell it, just put it away and you pretend you don't have it. And, uh, and that's through, I don't know, 30 years, 40 years now. He was right, wasn't he? Yeah. 30 years, I guess. Yeah. Man, I wish I'd been smart enough to do that with some of the cars I had, but my dad gave me horrible advice. So... <laughs> <laughs> what's really great about it today and not what I ever expected. And maybe he knew this mm -hmm. is now my sons are a, of age to, to drive and to tinker with them. My oldest isn't really interested. He, you know, he likes looking at it and you know, right. playing with it, but my middle one is a maker. My middle one, Henry dives right in there and tears it apart and fixes it and, you know, updates it. And, and so he's taken ownership of it essentially and has fixed some oil leaks the other day. And, you know, he's all in on it. And so it's, it's really great to be able to share it with him. Lucky that he's into that. So tell me a little bit about your family. Well, my dad, like I had mentioned, my dad is, uh, was an auto mechanic. My mom was a library clerk for the local elementary school. Uh, and so she worked, she basically was a stay at home mom until we were about, you know, 13 or so, whenever we could come home without her being there. Um, and, uh, and she worked full time as a library clerk for 25 years. 
Paramus school system and, uh, and helped dad run the business. And uh, yeah. And so that's what mom did. And then I have two brothers. I have a younger brother, Craig, who today is near me here in, in uh, Lake Norman, North Carolina, who runs a really big real estate brokerage company now. And my older brother, Scott, has a great story. He, he left New Jersey in pursuit of working in NASCAR. And so he was the oh, first wow. one to come down here in, in, in Charlotte. Ah, he, that's the North Carolina connection. That that's I how it all started there. for okay. us. Yeah, we actually, I, both of my brothers are here. Mm-hmm. My, my so older nice. brother was the first one to come down and, and he ended up working in NASCAR, worked for several teams, ended up becoming a crew chief for one of the teams. And then left and pursued some other things. And now he's, uh, he's a motorsports photographer and an architectural photographer. Wow. And so that's what he does today. His name is Scott, Scott LePage, if you want to check him out. He's got a great, his great portfolio. And so like 25, 30 years ago, they moved down to, to North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Anne-Marie, my wife and I were still in New York because we, we had um, moved over to Chappaqua, New York, and Westchester County. Right. About the same time my brothers moved, my wife's brothers moved, they, and they moved to the same place. They moved to Charlotte as well. So my Holy brothers cow. are north of the city, uh-huh. and my wife's brothers are south of the city. And so everybody coincidentally ended up in the same place. That is so and, cool, except for the folks. They're, they're everywhere but North exactly, Carolina. Exactly, right. So mom and dad <laughs> are, are still have the house that we grew up in, which now has is essentially, you know, it, it takes care of all the, the things that they've collected over the years. Mm-hmm. And my in-laws were in New York as well, near us, and we expected them to stay there forever. And so we were staying there forever as well. We, we never imagined we would move uh, from New York. And one day they went to visit their sons down in North Carolina and came back and said, we bought a house. <laughs> oh my <laughs> and, gosh. And we're moving. We're going to sell the house in New York and we're moving to, to North Carolina. And in less than nine months, packed up the house that they had lived in for 50 years, sold it, and awesome. moved moved to North Carolina. When they made that announcement, we said, oh, I guess we're going too, because was, <laughs> that was the reason we were there. So we closed wow. the architecture business and moved to North Carolina. Now, your kids, how many you have? Um, I know you've got one son, you mentioned. I have, I have three kids. I have mm-hmm. uh, a 21-year-old, uh, James, who now lives in New York City. He's a founder of a tech startup called oh, Share Club. Cool. And loving New York City. He's so he's living his dream. He went to Syracuse University and graduated a couple of years ago or a year ago or so. My middle one, Henry, is now working for Hendrick uh, Auto Group here in Charlotte as a technician. So yep. he's following the automotive world. Uh-huh. And my daughter is a sophomore in high school who is a competitive swimmer. Wow, so all, they all sound accomplished. Yeah, yeah, I'm very proud of them. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're proud, proud of, them. of them. Yeah. Now, your wife, where did you meet her? My wife, Anne-Marie, Anne-Marie McCarthy, I met her at my first architecture job. It was her second architecture job. Uh, it was my first one out of school. She, had, she was in, um, I think she was in uh, Long Island City before mm-hmm. she, she took this job in Ridgewood, New Jersey, or Barry Postganser is the name of the firm. And uh, who Barry takes full credit for my entire life, <laughs> because when, when I was I was working there, and when Barry hired Anne Marie, he looked into the back of the studio, pointed at me, and said, "He's a lonely guy back there." <laughs> That's funny, and, and, and stuck uh, her back there with you. Yeah, and and hired her, and the first day we met, we became friends, and very soon after that, became a couple. Never told anybody at the firm. We we kept it secret for the entire time we were working there. Anne-Marie had left and got another job in Westchester, which is what took us to Westchester County. She she moved to another firm there in Katona, New York. And I stayed there for another few months before I left. And when I left, I said, hey, Barry, do you remember Anne-Marie? <laughs> I said, uh, you know. Guess uh, what? Anne-Marie and I uh, were dating. And in fact, not only were we dating, we're engaged to be married. <laughs> and he had no idea. He had no idea at all. That's hysterical. So today he claims that, you know, uh, that he has, you know, full credit for my entire family because he introduced Anne-Marie and me 
And so my kids, my life, everything, it's all due to, to Barry. Well, thank you, Barry. <laughs> yes, thank, thank you, Barry. <laughs> you went to school in Rhode Island. How did you end up there? I did. I went to school at uh, Roger Williams University in Bristol. Mm -hmm. I looked around for architecture schools when I was in high school. I wanted to be an architect since I was 10. Um, and so I always knew I wanted to be an architect. And so I never really looked at anything else. I was the same way, uh, but then I got seduced away by the world of business. <laughs> you, you took this, the smart room. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I just got, you know, when I was a kid, I, I worked and made so much money. I thought, oh, this is really fun. But yeah, I always had an interest in architecture too. So did you make stuff out of Legos or did you draw yeah, on graph paper? We did. We yeah. did. I did all of did that. You? I did yeah. all of that. I love to draw. <laughs> And so when I, I used to sketch, pencil sketch everything. Um, so I, I'm a dreamer. I'm a, I have a huge imagination and I love to live in the future and I just dream about what could be. And so even to the, today, you know, the whole Entree Architect thing is really because of all of that, just pursuing my dreams. And back then I would draw my dreams. So I would just take a sketchbook and anytime I sort of wanted a, a new car or, mm -hmm. or a house, I would draw it and and that was, and that was fun. And so I imagined that I would become an artist and my mom opened my eyes because back in the eighties, artists didn't make any money today with the internet artists can make lots of money. And even then, I guess there, there were artists that made some money, but it wasn't really a job that you would pursue. Sure. Yeah. So mom introduced me to architecture and said, Hey, you know, architects do, do drawing and you'd probably be great at that. And so at 10 years old, I'm like, yep, I'm going to be an architect. <laughs> and uh, I never looked back stuck with it and then in, in high school when it was time to start looking for architecture schools i i did a tour and mm -hmm. roger williams was the first school that i toured and they had just opened their new they had just been accredited so it's brand new architecture school and the building was brand new the building had just opened the year before i visited it and so it was brand new shiny new building i met some of the professors and really liked the professors and so i judged everything against that school, visited lots of other architecture schools and just decided, you know, it was the right place for me. It was a small school. Mm -hmm. um, it's right on the Narragansett Bay. And so it's, and I love the water and I love Rhode Island. And so I do too. I yeah. I always loved Newport. I like Providence. When I lived in Boston, we used to go to Providence on Friday night sometimes. Yeah. And uh, over there by Brown and RISD. Yeah. 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 Just a cool town. Buddy Cianci, was he mayor when you were uh, he was. in school? Buddy Cianci was the mayor yeah. at the time. Yeah. <laughs> a criminal. What a character that guy is, for sure. <laughs> There's a great podcast. I forget the name of the podcast, uh -huh. but it's it's all about the Providence crime scene and or not crime scene, but the whole, you know, uh, organized crime and and Buddy yeah. Cianci's involvement in all of that and Fantastic huh. podcast. I, f I forget the name of it, but uh, I'll put it in the show notes if I can if I can remember. Well, it is cool there in New England, but you didn't stay. No, after you got out of school, I, you were. I didn't stay. I went back to New Jersey and and uh, you know got a job in Ridgewood and met my wife. So after the Ridgewood gig, how long were you there? I was there for job? about about nine months. Okay, um, and I always knew that I wanted my own firm, and so I sort of planned everything around that idea. And so okay. very strategically, right from the beginning, coming out of architecture school, it was 1993, I graduated. And so it was a recession. Mm -hmm. No one was hiring. And I got a job with Barry to measure 435 condominium units. Oh, what fun. About 200 of them were identical. <laughs> or <laughs> supposed to be identical, right? Yeah, <laughs> when exactly, you measure them, they're exactly. not. Well, they, uh, apparently he ha he had designed um, the building, the, the, a new condominium building, mm -hmm. and renovated uh, a whole um, a complex of mill buildings into condominiums. And the owners were being sued because they were renting these spaces um, by the square foot. And I, I guess see. Somebody, and the measurement wasn't right. The measurement wasn't right, and they sued the the building owner. And so they hired Brilliant. the architect to go back to measure every single unit, so they had a square foot number. And so. They hired, he hired me uh -huh. um, and I every day would take my measuring tape and go to this building. And the entire summer I spent measuring this, this complex. And, uh, and when I was wow. done, he liked what I did and my, you know, cause I just went all in on it and you uh -huh. know did the best job I could. My dad, you know, working with my dad 
he taught me very, very well, the, you know, the importance of working hard and, and showing, mm -hmm. you know, your, your worth. And so, uh, I did that with Barry and when I was done, he offered me a job and, and I stayed. You got, you took the crappiest job and, and did it and did it well. Exactly. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by RCAT.com. Can't find the product data that you're looking for? You might be using the wrong search engine. Broad searches result in consumer products, out-of-date information, and websites that hide or don't have the information that you're looking for. If you need specifications, CAD, or BIM, RCAT.com is your search engine. Find and download the up-to-date data that you need fast. RCAT.com is free and requires no registration. So try RCAT today. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. That's funny about the space. I was taught years ago, and I actually teach my undergrad new venture students this one because many times they rent space, but we were renting space in the multi-tenant mixed-use development we were in in Boston. And we were going to take this 10,000 square foot space that was originally designed to be a TGI Fridays and turn it into office space. And so, again, as you said, I mean, it was price per square foot. At the time, it was like 26 bucks a foot or something. It still wasn't cheap. You know, it, it was good space. But so I take the lease over to our crusty old attorney who is from New Jersey, a guy named Ron Doxer and worked for a bunch of big developers prior to setting up his practice. And I take this lease over to Ron. He goes, you got a tape measure? Uh, I said, uh, I can get one. He goes, meet me down there at the space. Because this office was in our complex too. Yeah. So we get on there, we measure it out. It was 8,800 and change, not 10,000. Yeah. And that saved us a fortune, hundreds of thousands over the course of the lease. And so Ron taught yeah. me, Lesson Always learned. measure the space. And then the same thing happened to us here. We were renting a space after we got the company back and we rented a space in a multi-tenant building. And then we were moving up to the next space. It was like 3,600. And uh, lo and behold, I had an architect working for my other business. And I said, throw that thing in CAD. Let's see what it really is. It was 2,700 square feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess they, they assume nobody's going to measure them. <laughs> Routine problem, huh? Yeah, yeah. That's funny. But, but so, it gave me my first job for sure, so I'm pretty happy with it. I guess it's a lot easier today with all the electronics, right? You don't have to actually measure anything. You just go in there with your phone. I, I got very good at measuring. And actually, that was my first business as my own business. You know, other Doing than- Doing belts. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, 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 had, I had a car detailing business was really my first business, um, you know, out of my father's shop as a kid. But as my first real business- after I started my own firm, well, actually, let me go from Barry's and sort of mm -hmm. give you the timeline to to this business. Um, when I left Barry Postganser, I I went to URS Consultants, which oh, I saw that on your resume. I thought that's not a great place for architects, URS, but URS was an engineering firm with yeah. an architecture sure div division. So it was a it was an EA firm. Well, they were buying everybody. It was UR Next. They became Grenier. And now that today, I think they're URS Group, I think they are, or whatever they're yep. called. One of the largest engineering companies in the world now. Sure. They had an office in Paramus. And a few of my friends uh, from high school worked there. And so when I left Barry's, which was a small firm, um, I thought, well, let's go to a large corporate firm to see what you know a large firm works, you know, feels yeah, like, you know, works. Sure. I would just wanted that, that experience knowing that I was going to start my own firm. I wanted sort of the oh, experience everywhere. And so I yeah. worked there for several right. months more. Um, and then Anne-Marie um, moved to Westchester County and mm -hmm. was working there. And so when we got married in 1996, I took a job with KG, uh, KG and D architects, Kyra Garman and Davidson architects in, uh, in Mount Kisco, New York. Now, you um, weren't registered yet, or is that about when you were getting licensed? After I left KG&D. Okay. And so that's actually how the Asbilts started. Anne-Marie was still working for the firm that she had oh. gone there for. 
I worked with KG&D for a couple more years, uh, became a project manager there and basically worked with one of the principals as sort of as his right-hand man. He would design and then I would take care of the rest of the project for him and learned a lot there. And I was, I was uh, likely on track for partner there. If I stayed there, I probably would have become partner. But again, knowing that I wanted my own firm, when I felt it was time to leave, I gave notice and, and I left. Not yet licensed, but Anne-Marie was licensed. She had okay. gone through the, the, the program and she got licensed. And so I left and I started a company called the Construction Documents Company uh-huh. and did existing conditions as builts for yep. residential architects. So I would, you know, go to, they would get a project. I would go to the sure. house. I would measure up the house, give them full CAD drawings. Critical. Um, it was a great business. It was, was super, it? Uh-huh. super profitable. It was easy. Uh-huh. Today, I always look back at that and think, oh, that's such a business that I could have, you know, uh, automated and, and built a team around with systems and probably could have built that into a, you know, really profitable company. A lot of architects would poo-poo that. They would be like, oh, that's not design. I don't want to do that. Yeah, well, it made, made me a you lot know? of money. <laughs> <laughs> It's necessary. It's a necessary service. I, I can relate to that. Yeah. And it was a great sort of transitional business because I didn't need mm-hmm. to be licensed. Yep. And Anne-Marie was licensed. And so the idea was I would start this company and I would freelance for architects and yep. I would help Anne-Marie launch our firm. So yep. she, we first launched it as Anne-Marie McCarthy Architect. Mm-hmm. And then we, when I got licensed, uh, we relaunched it and named it Five Cat Studio. And which was the office of McCarthy LePage Architects Incorporated. It wasn't incorporated; it was a PC professional corporation, and uh, and had that company from 1999, I think it was. We started it until mm-hmm. we left to come here in 19 in 19 in 2019. So about 20 years we had that that architecture firm. Now I looked at some of the stuff you did. I mean, you did do a lot of residential. Yeah, it was a residential firm. Yep. Seems like you had a real sort of classical bent, if nothing else. I did see a few modern projects on there, though. You're not a one-trick pony. Yeah. Well, actually, the way the the, the company was structured was I was the business side, mm-hmm. and Anne-Marie was the design side. And so, um, and we lived in Westchester County, and Westchester County is all traditional architecture, very, very little sure. modern architecture. And we started the firm as two 29-year-olds, very naive, not really knowing what we were doing, no clients, no money. And we wanted to do brand new, big, modern houses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and as two 29-year-olds, we very quickly learned that we the were competing. Yeah, the, the market <laughs> didn't want us. We were 29 years old and we were definitely qualified to do it, but we mm-hmm. were competing with firms that had been around for 30 or 40 years with portfolios that you know, showed such. And so we weren't getting any of those projects. And so Bob Stern or somebody like that. Exactly. Bob Stern was there. And, you know, a lot of the Connecticut firms and a bunch of, you know, there was several in Westchester County and those were all the the firms that we were competing with. And so nobody Mm -hmm. was going to hire these two 29 year olds. We started doing additions and renovations. Yep. And I went and took a class in a community college, Westchester community college called the, uh, the Academy of Entrepreneurial Excellence it was an entrepreneurial class. And it cool. was a 15-week program. Uh-huh. And every week was a different you know, element of business, right? So one week sure. it was sales and one another week was marketing. Uh-huh. And so we were going through the, the process. Every week I would go to the class and I would come home to Anne-Marie and report what I learned. And, and I would say, yep, yep, we're doing that. We're, we're doing that great. You know, there's, we don't need to worry about that. And then the next week, Yep, we're doing that right too. And, and you know, probably by the fourth week, she was getting frustrated because I was taking this class to try to figure out why we were hot towing. And when I got to sales, I realized that we had no sales mm. system. Uh, that was at, it. We had we had lots of marketing. We were really good at marketing. Lots of people knew who we were. Mm-hmm. Um, we built a brand around additions and alterations, residential additions and alterations. We called them high end small projects. Mm-hmm. And so all those big houses that we wanted to design, we ended up becoming the the additions and alterations company that fixed those firm, those, you know, fixed them or added to them. And we built a really great brand around, um, around those projects. 
Interesting. Now you did not do the the construction. Did you have contractors that you like to work with? Because yeah. it's obviously such a critical part in that business. It's hard to find decent contractors and subcontractors that'll build what you designed, I'm sure. Yeah, it was it was difficult. And we did we did have sort of a um uh, our go to contractors. And mm -hmm. there was a time for several years where we actually offered construction management services. So we, we yep. were advisors. Um, and so they would hire us and we would run the construction and we would just hire one of those general contractors to run the general trades. And then we would bid out the electrical plumbing and, and HVAC. It's funny you say that because, you know, I'm not an architect, but I was, I designed tons of stuff and I had people in my business who could do the drawing for me, but I, tried being a construction manager and the state of Arkansas didn't like that. They told me I had to become a licensed contractor, even oh, yeah. though no money was flowing through us. They just didn't accept it. Yeah. Is that a problem? There was not a problem in New York. The thing that I always advise people of is you have to be careful with your insurance um, yeah. because, because up to a certain limit, you can do it as an architect. So you don't need a separate company. Right. And your insurance will still cover you. The liability insurance will still cover you for, and I think the limit was 10% of your overall earnings. Mm -hmm. And so we just kept it under that 10%. And those were very profitable projects because we, sure. would get, we would get paid for design. And then we would also get paid for full construction management. And yeah. we're doing, as, as architects running construction administration, you're halfway there. Sure. Um, it's exactly. just a matter of coordinating subs at that point. And if you're working with a good team, it, that's a pretty easy process. Yeah. Yeah, so that was cool. That was a that was a nice little niche that you built up. And I'm sure you had a good clientele there because it's an affluent area. Yeah. Yeah. It was and it was were, a great business. We mm -hmm. we were very successful when we left New York, had a great portfolio and had a great brand and learned learned how to put together a sales system, which is simple, you know, just a matter of follow-ups and a process of of making converting the proposal into a project. And once we learned that. The rest of it was easy. I mean, the, the company grew and we were pretty successful. Residential clients, though, what a pain in the ass. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> you had husbands and wives that don't know anything and th sometimes they think they do and then they argue with you and then they go, I saw this in Pinterest. I want you to do that. And you're yeah. like, but that's totally incompatible with everything else you have here. Yeah. How do you deal with this? It, it, it is, it, that's part of it, right? And so if yeah. you embrace that, that's part of it and uh -huh. you, and you build your systems and your brand around that. You're just um, nicer than me. That's all I can say. I mean, <laughs> well, that's also why, you know, when I talk to architects where they, so they want to do everything, right? They want to do commercial and they want to do residential and they yeah. want to do uh, educational. No. Doesn't and, work. And if you try to do all of that, it, you Right, they're very different markets. Like you just said, with exactly. residential, residential is a very specific market, right? You, yeah. if you can build your company around taking care of those people, then you can thrive as a residential architect because you build it around the systems, right? You build it around the, the experience that those that those people are going to have. That it's it's more than just a set of drawings, or, oh man, or it's even more than just the building that they're building. It's about the experience that they're going through. Yeah, it's it's mar marital counseling in many and you cases, have to you have to acknowledge that and build <laughs> systems around that. Well, that I commend you, and I, I can see that you could do that because you have the the personality and demeanor that lends itself to working well with other people. I mean, it's obviously something something you do really well. It was a great it was a great firm because I Anne Marie is a fantastic designer, great architect. Mm -hmm. And so she, she, all the things that you see on the website are all her designs. I didn't do any design. I would do the, con, you know, the construction drawings and the construction administration and all the client contact. And that's the part I loved. So you guys weren't tripping over each other. Yeah, no, we, we, we learned very quickly that yeah. we needed our own lanes. We, we, exactly. we, we tried when we first uh, started dating, we tried to design together and it did not work at all. <laughs> oh yeah. I went through that with my wife too. So I get it. Yeah. So we just, we just learned that, you know, my, my passion is the business side and her passion is the architecture side. And so it works well. Well, I used to do everything. I mean, I had houses where I even did the art on the walls and picked the dishes out and designed the furniture and wow. everything. And once she and I started working together and I figured out she actually is better than I am at all that stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now I'm just hands off. Whatever you want to do is great. That's exactly and, how uh, I do it too. It yeah. works great. Yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes, you know, you hate to stereotype, but I think I probably more easily got into a rut with certain things. I get overly thematic. And my wife is like, she's not afraid to to do something different every time. And she's just more creative in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know? I, you know, I, I think it's important and you know this better than anybody <laughs> as an entrepreneur, you have to find your strengths and then go all in yeah. on them. Right. If your strength right. is, is not designed, it's true. Or if your partner is better at that, then you should yeah. focus on the things that you're good at and let the person who's really good at design do the design, even if you really want to. Right. Yeah. Design, no, you're right. Design other things. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, but that's so hard for some people. I mean, yeah. I think we're taught to like work on our weaknesses. Yeah. And I've always thought, you know, let's just accept those for what they are. Not to say you don't want to try to be better at everything, right. but right. let's focus on what we do really well. And so yeah. is that how you counsel your, your small firm yeah. clients that have husbands and wives working together yeah. or partners working together? I would recommend that to any partner. Mm -hmm. And I believe you should have a partner. I think it's much easier to run a business when you have a partner, if it's the right partner. I don't disagree. Somebody that bolsters your weaknesses is great. That's what it's all about. And I've interviewed, you know, I've interviewed Gene Cohn. I do, I've interviewed Patrick McLamey with HOK. Sure. You know, all, all of the, the big successful firms started with three letters because there were three people who started those firms. Right. And those yep. three, those three letters had three different strengths. Right. Yep. Gene, Gene Cohn is, is the, is the marketing guy, the business development guy. Sheldon, Sheldon Fox is the money guy, you know, and, mm -hmm. and Bill Pedersen is the design guy. Right. And then, yep. so the three of them, you know, they had their strengths and they taught that those strengths to other people. And the same thing with HOK, the history of HOK started the same way, very strategically kept, you know, that, that there was a management partner, there was a, a yep. design partner and a, you know, a business partner. You know, I grew up in St. Louis and one of my best friends, his dad was a partner for HOK and started oh, yeah? their London office. But uh, yeah, and my dad used to work with Jerry Sinkoff. Jerry was the chairman for a long yep. time, worked yep. with Jerry Sinkoff's Uncle, Uncle oh, yeah. Abe. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I knew all those guys yeah. over there. I, I, I don't know if you know, <laughs> I did a um, podcast series with Patrick McLamey called Build Smart. I did see that. I don't really know Patrick. I, he all came on the scene after I was long out of their HOK, but they were a client at one point. You would like him a lot. You're very similar people. So tell me now. So is it pronounced Gable? It's Gable. Yeah. Gable with no E, not an acronym. It, it's just the brand. It's a word that I wanted to own. And so we like Gables. Yeah, exactly. Gable is referencing <laughs> buildings and, and yeah. you know, covers and roofs and sort of, you know, the a protective structure. And so Gable, there's, was actually, there's technically two Gables. There's Gable Media, which is the podcast company and who I am partners with Demetrius Lynch. And then actually the company that owns Entree Architect is Gable Technologies. There's actually two separate companies. I don't promote uh, Gable Technologies because it's confusing to the Gable Media, but they're two separate companies. Jeff Eccles, you work with him in this deal. Yep. What? How is that? What's that arrangement? Jeff is is my partner at at uh, Gable Technologies, Entree Architect. Okay. He's the uh, the vice president of community development, and so his job is to grow the community. Does a great job. I just the frequency that you guys do your your communication and your, your, is that a, do we call that a podcast or a program in the afternoon? Yeah. It's, it's a conversation. It's, it's context and clarity has lots of pieces. So, so Jeff's brand is con context and clarity. And that's, that's under the, the cover of, of Entree Architect. It started during the pandemic. It started the week that the pandemic started. Wow. Well-timed. It was a response to the pandemic. It was Jeff and I were, were, he was working for me at the time. Mm -hmm. um, since then now as a partner, he and I were, were talking and we thought, well, you know, we had this Facebook group, a really strong community at the Facebook group yep. and, um, and the pandemic happened. And if every, everybody remembered that week when we all realized here in the United States that this was real and that firms were shutting down and the, the company, you know, the, the, the country was shutting down and it was scary. Everybody had a lot of fear and uncertainty. And so we decided I was scared. Yeah, everyone was. And so everybody 
didn't really know what to do. And so we decided that we were going to uh, commit to a week of signing on to Facebook live every day at four o'clock for a week, just to give some structure, just some, some continuity to your life. And so you would know that Jeff and I were going to be there for every day at four o'clock for, for actually, I think it started as a half hour. And then Jeff never stopped. He's still doing it. He's, he's been doing it since then, since, since 2020. Well, he's got a voice for radio. I mean, let's face it. His voice is unbelievable. And I just love how, how you get all these people involved. I mean, you've created a real community now. Yeah. And uh, now you've got a new offering, a new program for your, yeah. I don't know it, if we call them clients or community members or what do we call them? It, you mean the network? Yes. Yeah. So December 12th, 2022 was my 10 year anniversary. So I launched Entree Architect on December 12th, 2012. And it was, it, it started as a blog. And in 2012, I, I committed to turning it into a business that would help small firms thrive. Yep. And I've been doing it ever since. So 10 years now. So on December 12th, 2022, we announced that we were going to launch Entree Architect Network, which is yes. a business organization for architects. Mm -hmm. And it's different than Entree Architect Academy, which is what the membership has been for the last 10 years. Yes. Um, when we launched Entree Architect, I launched Entree Architect Academy, which was a membership site mm -hmm. that provided training and uh, business resources and mastermind groups. And now you're doing more. Entree Architect Network is intended to become an organization, you know, a global organization for architects focused on business. It still has all the resources from the academy and it still has mastermind groups. We now have 21 mastermind groups. It's fantastic. And those are all over the country, right? Yeah, they're, they're all virtual. So that the members are from all over the country. Actually, there are international members in some of those groups. And our goal at the Entree Architect Network is to connect and serve 100,000 architects globally. And that'll take a long time. It'll take decades, probably. The intent is to connect the world's architects with the intent of growing them as entrepreneurs. You know, recognize that we are business owners and bring architects together as an organization so then we can leverage that organization. We can do tremendous things when, once we are all connected as a network you know, we can, we can, you know, help one another, right? We can work with one another. We can partner with one another right now, or the way it was before Entree Architect Network is that tens of thousands of architects, maybe even hundreds of thousands of architects know who Entree Architect is, but we didn't really know them, right? We don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. And so Entree Architect Network invites those architects to come join this network. So now we know who you are. We know who you are. We know where you work. We know what your expertise is. We know who, who you want to be connected with. And so now we can leverage that, right? We can say, okay, this architect and this architect would be even more powerful together, right? And so we can bring them together and do amazing things. We can also, with scale, can go to, you know, insurance companies and software providers and say, hey, sure. we have 10,000 architects on our network. You know, you should provide us these services at a discount. And then the other, the, you know, if you think beyond that, you know, imagine... 10,000 architects linked up or 100,000 architects linked up. And we focus that collective knowledge through technology to solve global problems, right? Architects are, are problem solvers, right? And if you have a network of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of architects and you, and you very easily take technology to, to focus knowledge on a specific problem, imagine the problems we could solve as architects if we focus on, on those things. I wish you guys could could help with building codes, for example, and and uh, you know how restrictive they are, and 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 that's a huge part of the problem. Obviously, is the is the zoning and the building codes as it relates to affordable housing. I mean, you know, we can't have affordable housing with these lot coverage ratios that we have around here. We're not going to have density. We could solve all those problems for two reasons. We can solve those problems because one. We would have the knowledge to solve those problems, right? We can we can bring the knowledge of of thousands of architects together and say, here's here's how this could be, right? But then we also have the scale to go to municipalities and say, this should change, right? We have we have thousands of architects who think this should be different. That has tremendous power, right? AIA has tremendous power because they have 
100,000 well, architects that, linked. That brings me to my next question. I mean, I don't want to interrupt you, but, and I know you and I talked about this before, but I'll just assume that not everybody heard it. What's the difference between you and AIA? How do you see yourself as an organization compared, you know, what your role is versus yeah. theirs? Well, I definitely think that we're different. Entree Architects is a, is a business organization, right? We're focused on helping small firm architects primarily, but could grow beyond that to help them build better businesses, right? Yep. And so that's what we're focused on. It's also community run. It's and AIA is is as well, but AIA right now is more should be more focused on political side of what we do, right? And impact the the rules and regulations like you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. But I believe that that by building a network, uh, that network can then do what we want to do, right? We can we can uh, have the freedom and the flexibility to move that organization in any direction we want it to be. And it's primarily focused on on business. It's primarily focused on teaching right. architects to be successful entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Some architects probably, when they hear entrepreneurship, they're like, yuck, <laughs> I don't want to be an entrepreneur. You know, there's something, some negative association yeah. for them. I'm not saying all, obviously. Yeah, I think that's changing. Do you? Okay. When I first started, you know, 10 years ago, and when I started in the profession, you know, even longer than 30 that. 30 plus years ago, yeah. Yeah, the AIA has, has done significant damage to the profession by uh, the response to the antitrust uh, lawsuits that they had. Mm -hmm. um, for generations, architects were afraid to talk about business and talk about money because yeah. of the rules of the AIA. Sure. And there's an entire generation of architects who were misun misunderstood the rules and assumed that they couldn't talk about business or money anywhere as architects. Mm -hmm. The rule is you can't talk about fees in yeah. when you were assembled as the AIA, right? Because sure. that's a rule they have. And that's not against the law. That's against AIA, you know, their rules in order to protect right. the AIA. And yeah. I don't blame them for that. Sure. I blame them for not educating the architects that they should be focused on money and they should be talking with about uh, their knowledge with one another. They should be sharing sure. business knowledge with one another and money is, you should be talking about money and fees. Um, and as long as you're not in, you're not colluding, there's no law right. for being broken. Well, and plus it's so fragmented, the industry. I mean, even if you are colluding, you're still a very small group in terms of the size of the overall industry. Not to say it's okay yeah. to collude. I'm just, you know, it, it just seems like it, it's crazy. I, you know, my experience with pro practice courses is they they really don't equip these architects to be in business for themselves. Right. And I saw a statistic once, it's like one out of five architects ends up an owner of the business. So obviously they need that. Um, right. And the, you know, I hate to be critical, but I mean, some of the pro practice teachers I've seen out there really don't know anything about it. And that's one of the things that we actually have a, a goal set to mm -hmm. create a curriculum for architecture schools. Interesting. And so, and we're actually going to uh, announce some things later this year, which I'm not mm -hmm. going to reveal right now, but we're working on something that will allow architects to run their businesses better. And when we launch that, it will it can very easily become a curriculum for architecture schools because architecture schools don't have a proper business curriculum no uh, professional practice classes are not teaching architects to be to biz, to be business owners they focus on contracts more than anything else right and you know outdated ideas and outdated books they should be be taught to be entrepreneurs they should be yes. and because whether you are not you're going to run your own business if you understand business you're better employed Absolutely. Right? So the profession yeah. thrives when architects can be financially successful. Well, I hate to use this this term, but you, you're you're really trying to sort of bring up the whole profession. I think is really what it sounds like to me. My intent is to shift the profession to move it in a different direction, with the idea that architects are business people, that architects are entrepreneurs. Yeah, and being a good designer is not in conflict with being a good business person. No. In fact, you become a better designer, right? Right, because if you have the money, then you you have more time, more resources, more everything to focus on the on the creative side. I agree, hundred percent. It's a noble endeavor, my friend, and and I appreciate your. I, 
I think you're the guy to make some serious inroads on this problem. Well, I it hope seems so. Seems like you're doing it. That's that. That's my plan. And so mm -hmm. uh, I just keep moving forward. You know, I have a community who embrace me, and they've embraced me from the very beginning. They are the ones that encouraged me to launch Entree Architect in the first place. And so I, I really feel that I, I, this is my purpose. Uh, I'm here for this, and that the community continues to encourage me to keep moving forward. And so I just keep moving forward. We've gotten to where we are today because, you know, we just take the next step. What What's next? And and right now, what's next is, is Entree Architect Network, which is just the little seed of what Entree Architect will become in the future. So architects out there, if you're not a member of Entree Architect Network, join us because we're going places. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, I believe you. I've seen it. And uh, I just enjoy working with you guys the little bit that we have. It's It's all fun. And I think it's it's stimulating, you know, I mean, it keeps I think, you know, what you're doing is is it keeps people learning. It keeps people growing. That's that's yeah. a big part of it. I got to keep doing that because I'm getting old, buddy. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're part of it. I'm I'm very happy that recently you've become become more engaged with us. Um, I love seeing your name in the community and you you're commenting. It's been great to have you there. So thank you for that. It's great to be there. And, uh, you know, it's great. I, I think some people might say, well, gee, do those guys compete with Swide Group? I don't think you do. I think we have completely different and unique places in the marketplace that we serve. I mean, we're not restricted to architects, obviously. We work for a much broader range of design and related yeah. firms. And I think, you know, truthfully, we focus on larger companies, not the right. megacorps, but you know, let's just say larger firms than what you're focusing on, and they have different needs. And I think there's room for for everybody out there. I agree. Um, I agree. When asked about competitors, right from the beginning, I've always, I mean, this is a mission for me, right? And so I look at competitors as allies, right? If you are out there working to make the profession better, which the right. group is, then you're my ally, right? And 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 I will do everything I can to help you succeed. And I hope that you will do everything that you can to help me succeed, because ultimately, at the end of the day, if the profession thrives, we both thrive. Yes. Right. It's a very big world and a very big market. It, when it we is. picked 100,000 architects, we did that very intentionally. Right. It's it's a very big world. And 100,000 architects is just the percentage of the architects in the world. And so it's a huge market. It's a huge uh, community. And there's plenty of room for us to all grow. And there's there's lots of improvement to be made, right? And so Amen. if Zwei Group thrives and Entree Architect thrives and AIA thrives and all the other people out there that are working hard to, to help architects be more successful, then the whole world is going to shift because architects architects are the ones that, that create our built environment and beyond yep. that. Yep. Um, and so if we can make the, the profession more successful, then the world benefits from the work that we do. I totally agree. And I think there is so much ignorance. I mean, that is part of the problem. The general public just doesn't really know yeah. what architects do. And that's a big piece of what we have planned. That is that is super, super critical. And the AIA has yep. made efforts in the past to deal with that. And they had their advertising campaign and all. And I just don't think it was very effective. I mean, yeah, I think advertising is is a big piece of it. I think mm -hmm. advertising is important. I think it's much bigger than a couple of ads on Sunday morning television. I think it's about architects telling their own story, yep. uh, teaching architects how to tell that own their own story, right? Building brands, which architects yes. traditionally haven't done. If all individual architects build really strong brands and get really good at telling their story in whichever medium they are most accustomed to, whether it's writing or, or video or podcasting or whatever, however it is, right? Speaking if we're out there telling our own story, then, then others can't tell that story for us, right? HGTV is another yes. big, big problem in our industry that, that they, they uh, share misinformation. They don't, they're not sharing the entire story. They misidentify who we are and what we do. And that's fine, right? They're out there making money, doing their thing. They should keep doing that. But architects, there should be a counter to that, which is, which is why Gable Media exists. Gable mm -hmm. Media is, a, is the company that provides a way for us at at first by through podcasts, but eventually through video and through uh, digital print 
to allow architects to tell their stories, to, to share their knowledge, the things that they're good at, the things that they thrive at, um, to share that information with each other and the world. And so we can start, you know, having the, the general public understand what we do yes. and, and begin to value what we do. Well, I think you've obviously got your course charted and you're well on your way. And it's great seeing the success that you're having. And I truly hope that uh, you can achieve your vision in your lifetime and, you. and really improve the, the lot of architects the world over. Thank you, Mark. And it's a noble endeavor. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate your support as well. You know, through the, the last few years, you and I have become friends. I appreciate your support. I appreciate your guidance and advice when I need it. And thanks for doing this. This has been a lot of fun. Well, it's been great. Um, hopefully everybody's gotten to uh, to know you a little bit better and a little know a little bit more about where you're going with your your thing, for lack of a better term, because it is multifaceted. I hope every architect who's listening becomes part of it, right? This isn't about Mark LePage. This is about the profession and the individual architects that, that are part of the Entree Architect Network. And so I, I'm hoping that every architect joins joins what we're doing and uh, thanks for for helping us spread the word my pleasure thank you if you liked this episode of entree architect podcast please share a rating write a review share a link with a friend that's how entree architect has grown to serve thousands of architects just like you please share a rating write a review share a link to this episode with a friend i'd appreciate it Links to all our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. It's the network dedicated to architects, engineers, and construction pros. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at Gable Media at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Go check it out. We have, I think... 13 podcasts over there now gablemedia.com and before we wrap up a special thank you to our partners at graphisoft for helping our community of architects make the transition to bim with archicad software go now to graphisoft.com slash us slash entree architect and see how graphisoft is positioning to help make your architecture firm a success visit graphisoft.com slash us slash Entree Architect to learn more. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage. Love, learn, and go share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i, I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. <laughs>
Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.